0: Hey, this is Rob, and this is episode 47 of the Folly Coffee Podcast. Let's get it brewing. Hello, I am here with Kieran Folliard of What Do I Even Say You're Of These Days.
1: (laughs) <laughs> of uh, Oh, I don't know. I've gotten myself into so much trouble over all of the years, but uh, certainly still involved with the whiskey business uh, with Two Gingers and Kilbegan Distilling Company, Ireland's oldest distillery, and also with, of course, food building in northeast Minneapolis where we have uh, Red Table Meats, a salumi business, Bakersfield flour and bread, stone milling uh, organic grain from here in Minnesota, and also with Alamar cheese.
0: I first met you, we're just talking off mic, so I'll kind of just do like a 30-second version of that conversation, but I first met you when a mutual friend uh, introduced us, and this is when Folly was nowhere and nothing and nowhere to be seen, Uh, and I just felt like I was wasting your time just by meeting, but... You gave me some of the advice that I give almost everybody. I've said it on this podcast multiple times of you should read Blue Ocean Strategy. It shaped how I started Two Gingers Whiskey and Mm -hmm. how I strategized of looking at what competitors were doing and basically, in the short of it, say, how do we do it opposite so that we don't even have competitors because we're doing things so differently that it's not even a comparison to a Jameson and a Two two Gingers because they're so different the way they're marketed. And uh, I had that realization. I go... This is a person who launched a highly successful whiskey brand in a highly, highly competitive market, especially when you consider liquor laws in the U.S. with distributors. Not only do you have to compete and sell to try to get into stores, but you also have to get share of mind and sales strategy at the distributor level, adding this extra layer of complexity. I go, okay, if he he read this book, maybe I should try to hone in my ADD and get get through this thing. And I I think I read it in like a day and a half, and it Mm -hmm. just totally changed how I think about everything. But- you have a really cool story. I was reading some more of your background because it's been a couple of years since we first met, but I never knew, at one point, you ended up selling dairy, as, as most people do, selling dairy in the Middle East. Can you please explain how you found yourself selling dairy in the Middle
1: East? Uh, well, uh, I was very interested in adventure, for sure. Uh, And I grew up in a farm community in the west of Ireland. And after college, uh, I remember seeing an advertisement in an Irish newspaper, the Irish Independent, and it was a half-page ad. And they were looking for some recent grads uh, to go work. They were looking for four to go work in uh, Riyadh in Saudi Arabia to help launch a dairy products brand. It was an Irish company. It was um, owned by... um, Uh, Two farmers, uh, Alistair and Paddy McGuckin, from Northern Ireland. And, of course, I applied for it. I actually got turned down for the job at least twice. Uh, But I kept hounding them and telling them that they were making a mistake. (laughs) And I just was – I was so fired up. I mean, you never saw a half-page ad – for recent grads in the newspaper at the time and so this whole idea of adventure uh, of launching helping to be part of a team that was going to launch a brand a brand new brand in the Middle East I thought this is it and so I really went after it and you know eventually um, they uh, they gave me the job and uh, uh, I went out to Riyadh in 1977 and I left I was there 77, 78, 79 and um ended up uh, coming here in 1987. But it was a great adventure. It was probably a turning point for me in terms of what I really wanted to do in life because Alistair McGuckie, and um, in particular Alistair, uh, was very visionary, but he was also very passionate about what, uh, what he did. And so the idea of acting on your ideas and bringing them to life, it, he made it seem like, uh, you know, You can do it if you absolutely believe in it because the challenges that he had building dairy farms in the middle of the desert. You would drive through the desert and after a couple of hours, you come across a square mile of sorghum grass growing eight feet tall with uh, central pivot irrigation systems from Nebraska pumping uh, warm water into the field uh, was mind-boggling to me. I mean, this was wow you can actually do this and so yeah it was uh, it was a big moment for me to a realization of how i responded to that idea and to the challenge and the work and so i think it kind of encouraged me uh, and still does to this day about acting on ideas
0: were you there for the entirety of that length of time before you came to minnesota uh,
1: no i was there 77, 78, 79 okay. and yeah yeah and then uh, Ended up coming here April 16th, 1987. What
0: happened in between the time that you are in the
1: middle Oh, I was back in Ireland working. Yes. Okay. Yeah, 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 I was back in Ireland. I wasn't just, yeah, I wasn't lying on a beach. Well, I'd never lie on a beach anyway because I don't like that, but uh, um, I could have been climbing a hill or, I don't know, doing something. But no, I was back in Ireland working for those, um, uh, well, almost uh, six years, I guess. Okay. Yeah. What, what ends up bringing you to Minnesota? Uh, well, one of the connections to here, of course, was the fact that when uh, I was in uh, Saudi, uh, we had a joint venture uh, with Cargill. And so, of course, Cargill, as you well know, is out of Minnesota here, came here for a year and, um, you know, 33 years later, I'm still here uh, um for, you know, I don't know, that's just life, I guess, you know, <laughs> and decisions that you make along the way and, uh, you know, choices that you make as well about what sort of a life that you want. And then, of course, there are things like family, and so family, now they're in school, and mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. now they're out of school. Grandkids are going to school now. There.
0: <laughs> and was your very first pub, was it Molly Malone's?
1: Molly Malone's. How did the Molly idea, spelled M O L L I E like the original Molly? <laughs>
0: <laughs> what sparked the original idea from selling dairy in the Middle East, spending time back in Ireland, moving to Minnesota to I'm going to start a uh, I'm going to start an Irish pub here in Minnesota.
1: Well, I uh, you you've, I'm sure you've heard the term uh or the phrase that uh you know, most of the best ideas come from solving your own problem. Mm-hmm. Um, my problem was that there were no Irish pubs here. There were American Irish pubs, good ones, uh, the Algaras and McGoverns and people like that. And... Um, uh, but there wasn't what we would call a modern Irish pub uh, because they were multi-generational and really had lost the connection to Ireland uh, for sure and so uh, I just wanted to bring that that type of culture I guess and I wanted to be associated with it myself because I really felt that I even though I didn't have a background in that business I really felt I knew what the heart of it was about it's a public house, the egalitarian mm-hmm. gathering spot, it's the place That no matter who you are, if you're happy with who you are, then you can go to the pub because the pub is going to be happy with who you are. And so, um, yeah, it was an adventure to say, right, I think I can actually do this and build a business out of it.
0: What are the big differences between a modern Irish pub, like you say, and some of those generational pubs?
1: Well, I think... uh, If you look back uh, and the history of pubs in Ireland, I mean, it was people basically gathering in people's houses. Yeah, Yeah, the public house. I love that story. (laughs) And then eventually, of course, it transformed into being almost like a community center. And then it. Trend it, it, it develops into being, uh, well, this is, you know, this is my house because uh, this, here are the people that go there and here's what they talk about or here are the activities there. And so it becomes very personal. It takes on part of who you are, like-minded people, <clears throat> Still, plenty of room for debate, and so the idea of bringing that type of uh, of culture into the pubs would have been very new here. Uh, it would have existed a long time ago, but that had gone, and so things like traditional Irish dance, the music. We had a theatre. We had music every week. We had uh, the first ones to put a satellite on the roof to bring sports from Ireland, rugby, Gaelic football, hurling. And so these things were all part of it. Uh, pub quizzes. Uh, back this bit, there were no pub quizzes at the time. They just you didn't even hear of them. Now, of course, they're, obviously they're everywhere. Uh, and then also um, the idea of... Um, You know, debate and discussion and the camaraderie and groups and the recognition of uh, the people that come into the place. Um, You know, knowing the person, knowing their name, knowing their drink, knowing their uh, family situation. That was very much a part of it in the early days for sure. You know, things do change though over time. Things changed mm-hmm. as well with competition and um, changing needs out in the marketplace. Uh, you know, we don't need to harp on uh, change at the moment and, uh, you know, what that's doing to the hospitality world with COVID-19. Uh, but uh, at that particular time, yes, it was something new and, and refreshing, I suppose.
0: Mm-hmm. After I was done playing football in college, I had a bunch of free time and I learned that the rugby team was doing an Irish tour, a week long tour where they were going to go around Ireland playing different clubs around the country. Right. And I'd never played rugby, but I said, well, I'm pretty big. So if I uh, lose the weight so I can run around a little bit, then maybe I can make this team with the goal of going to Ireland uh-huh. and made the cut and went over to Ireland. And one of my big takeaways is, I think especially as an American born and raised in Minnesota, you have this idea of what an Irish pub is. And it's almost like a lot of the pubs you encounter in the US, they're catering to that idea. You know, they want everything that you might think it would be. But the pubs that to me are the most memorable over there are the ones you're talking about, the when we play these clubs and then you go to their pub. Right. It's it is like you're going to someone's living room mm-hmm. and because we had played them, and rugby is not like football where you hate your other team, you yeah. pu- you play aggressively and beat each other up during the match, and then afterwards you go drink with them, which t- was maybe the coolest thing ever as a 22-year-old sure. yeah. <laughs> who had been playing football for four years. Right. But th- that was a big takeaway for me is – the Irish culture behind uh, uh, not just, like, the pub that they want Americans to come to, but the pub that they don't want Americans yes. to come to are probably the ones that were the most compelling to me.
1: Uh, uh, well, I think, no, they'd always be be very open and welcome to people. Uh, in fact, I can tell you the. Dozens of times that I've been told by uh, Americans who have gone to Ireland, and they said, "Oh my God, I went into this pub down in ballyed a wherever uh, in the the west of Ireland where I'm from," uh, and said, "Oh, just we're chatting away there, and I tell them about my heritage and whatnot." And next thing, somebody buys me a pint, yep. and then somebody else buys me a pint, and uh, so I think there is um, there is a very strong affinity between yeah. American Ireland, not just because of the heritage. Uh, I, I should. To be He's very
0: specific that this was St. Patrick's Day week, so there was yeah. a very specific type of American they didn't want coming oh, in their pub. Okay. So when I say that, it was the American tourists there for St. Patrick's Day <laughs> yep, that they're yep. like, We're good with not having that person in the here. Yeah. We don't, good. yeah. Um, but that I actually
1: they'd be very happy to have them at the minute. It's funny, so I like can the, tell you the pub trade yeah. is uh, it's on its knees in Ireland at the moment, as it is here as yeah. well in this country, yeah.
0: I, I ran into two uh, Irish guys in. I was visiting, my buddy was doing a homestay in Paris. I went to stay with him. We go to a Scottish rugby match. We go to a Scottish bar after. I run into two Irish guys. Like you said, they end up buying multiple rounds. I end up saying, if you ever find yourself where I'm studying in Barcelona, you can crash with me. I think in the U.S. you just say these things. They came and crashed with me. They stayed for a full (laughs) weekend. I was like, this is... I I think that was a really cool connection to have. That echo. Sure. This is a fun way to live life. That it's just yeah. why not? Yeah. It all starts with a few rounds. So you go from Molly Malone's. Is Kieran's the next? next yep. And then is the local after yep. that? And I think it was Kiffy. Liffy. Yeah. Liffy. Liffy. Yeah.
1: And then, uh, uh, well, what's now the local It was Cooper, but the local West End
0: over in St. Louis Park. Yeah. At what speed did this happen? Did you have that goal in mind that I'm going to start one pub and then see how quickly we can grow to two and three? Or is it something that Mm. happened organically?
1: It happened more organically, yes, and and you notice they all had different names. I just didn't want them all to look like a chain, and so they had their own you could kind of tell that they had this they were the same DNA just like family members, mm-hmm. uh but they all had their own personality as well on top of it, and that was important to me, uh you know, was it the best way to do it from a business standpoint, maybe maybe not I, you know it's difficult to say, um. But uh, but they definitely did have their own personality. And that would have been more of my style of doing things.
0: And that seems to be – you look at it now and you look at the chains that are struggling because especially millennials and younger have – if they see multiple locations, it's no longer somewhere I want to go. And now you see restaurant groups, especially when I was at Sam Adams, that, that's the whole thing is restaurant groups – that have multiple locations, but they're all part of the neighborhood in the community as opposed to just, we're going to see if this concept works here, here, and here. Right. And one will probably fail. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Uh, I think, you know, again, I mean, obviously we're, again, I don't. everybody is experiencing it out there in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, where it's all going to go from this, um, I'm not sure. I've talked to some people who've been in the business as long as I have... Even though I no longer own the pubs, they're with people that uh, that worked with me for for years. They own them. Uh, But, you know, some people who have been in it even longer than I have here, and really very successful people in the hospitality world. And I would say to a person, they all tell me that they just don't know where this is all going, Mm -hmm. what it's going to look like in 12 months' time. I mean, we are going to recover from all of this, clearly. uh, But what sort of uh, destruction takes place uh, before that recovery? Recovery takes place i think will inform and will um give us what will probably be a whole new way of experience social socializing and, and get together with friends and family
0: and and that's the scary part as you look at this and you go what is the day is there a day is it length of time and that's the scary things it seemed like when this all started it was going to be okay the curve is flattened we did it there's enough beds for everybody we're back and It was kind of almost, I I sense from a lot of people that they're like, oh, this is like a long break. I get to work from home. And then it went from that to where we are now to what, there's no solution in sight, especially when it comes to the restaurant industry. You lay plans in place that last two weeks. And that's been frustrating. We don't have a brick and mortar. It's even frustrating on our end when we're trying to figure out how to go about things. But we have wholesale partners that have made plans that are good for two weeks. And then a new rule comes out and you're no longer viable. And, and that's what's scary. Uh, the only one of the few good things to come out of this, I hope, is I do think people have a deeper appreciation for their local economy and local businesses and are realizing that the dollars you spend locally are more important than ones that you might go to a chain restaurant. And there may be a bit more intentionality, but like you said, it, it's really hard to predict the long term effects of what this how this might affect people's ideas of going out and dining
1: yeah the restaurant business, bar business, hospitality business, whatever the overarching the umbrella idea is, uh, was already struggling prior to Covid nineteen because of issues of uh, inequality in terms of pay scales, uh, the whole issue of the minimum wage, uh, the issue of licensing, the issue of access to things like health care, uh, cetera, and so the margins are very thin. Uh, at the best of times in the restaurant world. There's always examples of ones that are doing extraordinarily well, but it is a bit like uh, the general population that's, they're the one percenters so mm-hmm. out there. Most, you know, you're, you're scraping by on a five, seven percent margin on whatever you're doing. And so uh, the timing of COVID 19, I think, uh, on top of those structural uh, fault lines that were in place prior to it, uh, will probably lead to a different business model. But still, the need for people to socialize and be together and, and find a way to do it that is more equitable as well from an employee standpoint also.
0: Is that five to seven percent? Do you think that's because of these flaws or business models of the restaurant industry or do you think that's just the way it is when you're in a food and beverage business like that, or restaurant business?
1: Yeah, well certainly food. Um, Food is quite cheap in this country. Um, I mean uh, you look at the industrialized food system that's in place with the huge um, farms, the huge uh, food processors, and basically and then the huge um, uh, retailers, uh, the Walmarts, the Targets, etc. There's such pressure on to keep getting the cost of the raw materials down and down and down uh, and then you get a commodity. That's what you get—a commodity. You can't have small batch stuff and have it at those prices. I mean, look what we're doing with food building. I mean, our farmers that we work with on the getting sourcing milk, grain, and hogs—they cannot survive on commodity pricing. We will not get grass-fed year-round. Uh, cows, uh, milk from cows that are grass fed year round uh, organic grain and different types of heritage grains etc hogs that are fed barley with no hormones, no antibiotics, you cannot get those at commodity prices the farmer wouldn't exist and so we do pay uh, double in most cases uh, for those uh, ingredients from so it's really a partnership with these farmers uh, to make the products we make, now they are then more expensive as a result to that, Uh, I mean, because we have literally, it is handcrafted fermentation is the core of what we're doing at the building and here you have a situation where these products now have to go into distribution, and so something that might cost $10 uh, when we sell it to a distributor um, it's in a retail outlet for maybe $30 (laughs) and so, you know, again, that model for the small guys like us won't survive. You can't survive. So direct consumer, um, specialty uh, co-ops are very good supporters of ours because it's a aligned value system. Uh, And so it's going to be interesting to see where this all goes. Um, I
0: mean, there's a direct parallel to, to coffee that people will look at a bag of our coffee for $15 at a grocery store or $18 online and go, why is this so expensive? And I go, You don't understand that coffee, any less expensive than this, someone is being taken advantage of in the process of importing, of growing, of picking. Someone, if it's any less than that, someone is probably being taken advantage of. And I've never thought about it like that. That It's the consumer not willing to pay more puts the producer in a position that you have to make these choices of... It's a major risk to say, I know what everybody's used to paying, but we're going to make something that's better than that. And so we're going to have to charge more versus being something that people are very comfortable with. And I think it almost goes back to just American culture post Uh, prohibition when industrialization became very in vogue and very cool that like nationally distributed products were never a thing. And it was almost like Americans going, look what we can do. We can make nationally distributed products. And then it became more and more commoditized as these nationally, uh, these national companies take control because of the resources they have. And I think we're starting to see a backswing of it that people are starting to say, maybe I shouldn't spend all my dollars at these national companies, but they have so many resources, especially when you talk about grocery stores and some of the, uh, like, uh, the places that you buy food, the difficulty I found folly and going out and selling to retail is that some of these large companies will lose money just to make sure that you don't get, Oh, sure. Get the, get the good space, get the promotion, get yeah. this or that. And, with that, they can continue to drive prices down, and anyone who takes that risk, they will undercut more to make it seem more ridiculous. And it is a difficult thing. But we were just saying before this started that so so food building for those who aren't familiar with it is this um, this amazing building you created mm. in Northeast. It has uh, Red Table Meats, Bakersfield Flour, where you are milling your own flour, stone stone milling, <laughs> stone milling your own flour in Northeast. Red Table. I don't, I'm not super familiar with charcuterie, but I understand that there's a lot of like natural, is it fermentation that you would call it? Within yeah, well, meats? it's
1: dry aging. Uh, yeah. So it's salamis, uh, salami being the overarching name. So salamis, whole muscle cures, and then uh, hams and uh, speck and uh, along the lines of prosciutto and that type of thing. So it's all uh, pigs.
0: And I saw the white casing on the outside of the meats when I was taking the tour for the very first time. And when you told me that there are companies out there that have made fake casing to mimic what happens when you actually dry age meats authentically, that's where I go, we have something really, really wrong with our food system. If there's a company out there that's... Can you imagine that meeting where they go, this doesn't look like what it's supposed to be well, what if we create a fake white mold-looking thing so that it looks like salami that people are used to?
1: Yeah. Uh, there's all sorts of tricks. I mean, yeah, yeah. You look at the um, uh, at the labels that are out there on the on the shelves, and you know, you mentioned about the breads that can sit on a shelf for a month. Well, anything that can sit on a shelf for a month, I mean, there's preservatives involved. Clearly, I mean. Now, so you are taking you're altering um, uh, the actual Food ingredients, the nutritious, flavorful foods uh, that we should all be, uh, that everybody should have access to, and that they should be value driven for sure. Uh, but you also don't need as much of those foods. Like our ham for Red Table Meats hams, you don't need six ounces of that on a beautiful sandwich. You need two ounces. Two ounces, you'll get all of the flavor, you'll get all of the nutrient value out of those two ounces with a beautiful piece of baguette, nice little spread of butter on it, and you're good to go.
0: It's, it's like 50 plus years of this industrialization has made people value the convenience of having bread that bread's supposed to go stale after a few days if you're buying fresh bread. You're supposed to go to the baker every few days to get your bread for the week. But the minor inconvenience in the couple of dollars, you're not caring that this ingredient list on your bread, which should be what three ingredients: yeast, water, salt, and yeah. and flour should yeah. be four ingredients. We
1: actually even naturally leaven the breads, so no Still, commercial yeast. So
0: involved. no commercial yeast, and it's like, well, that's mildly inconvenient, even though it's much better for me. And a lot of people, I have a gluten intolerance. No, you have a, you have an intolerance of the ultra refined nice. sugars. That when you pull it apart, but anyway, I digress. Uh, food building, you also have Alamar Cheese Company.
1: Alamar Cheese, yeah, doing wonderful brie, Camemberts. Uh, french style soft cheeses we 're also doing cheese curds and uh, and some uh, very delicious mozzarella as well
0: and, and and as and the most recent addition is Kieran 's kitchen, which is as you put it a way to display everything that 's happening in that building
1: yeah kieran 's kitchen 's job uh, i didn 't necessarily want to get back into the uh, the restaurant um, cafe market bar business, uh, but its job is to highlight promote. Uh, educate and build the brands in the building because we do have to be our own best um, promoters in that regard. Telling the stories, telling, uh, talking about the farmers that we partner with, um, uh, telling the story of the makers and how we go about intentionally making the products that are there on display. But then we also curate things to create a meal that people can also buy whether it is, you know, they can have a frozen meal, whether they can have it to eat straight away or take home and uh, heat up at home.
0: And going back to the the weirdness of things that Americans consider normal is, I was telling you that on delivery days, I stop by like every other week for a sandwich at Kieran's, yeah. and it's a simple Italian sandwich. I, if I tell someone about it, they're like, well, what's on it? Because everybody's got to have the gimmick of the special sauce or this or that, or this is why this sandwich is so different. I'm like, it's just it's a sandwich with italian meats and lettuce and some cheese and it's it's amazing and they're like what's so amazing about it and it took me a second but i go oh everything on that sandwich is coming and made from within that building so it's on the bread that's being stone ground and baked in house it has cheese that is being fermented in house it has meats that are being cured in house and everything just comes together that you go, this is a simple sandwich but it's the the You can just taste the quality difference. And what resonated with me is I go, oh, that should be how food tastes, which is almost concerning about what I'm having everywhere else more so than anything.
1: Yeah, We love to, to say to people, you know, when they're buying a loaf of the bread. And, and again, as I mentioned earlier, the co-ops and, uh, and like the Cerdix and France 44 or, uh, and Kowalski's as well. Uh, God love them. Uh, they're all very good supporters of ours. Uh, but what we, well, we love uh, talking to our uh, uh, customers who physically come into the building uh, about that bread there, that was grain 48 hours ago. That's- it was grain. Then we stone mill millet, Then we naturally leavened the breads. And there you go. So 48 hours ago, that was a handful of grain.
0: And you're like, yeah, but it's $2 more than what I can get at this store. I don't know. And you're like, <laughs> did, I, did you not just understand what I just told you about this bread? And that's. It, it is frustrating sometimes because you just I, I get the same thing that you just kind of want to scream sometimes that you go this this isn't expensive this is the pr- if everybody is coming to the table saying you need to pay fair living wages you need to do this you need to do right. that and this is all true but yeah. there is a responsibility of the consumer to play their part in that role.
1: Yeah. But uh, and also to, to, it's our job as well though it's uh, to educate people about even things like the fact that, you know, our loaf of bread, you are not going to eat a whole loaf of bread. I mean, maybe this the odd person here or there that might, but you're not going to because it's it's dense and, so the, uh, and flavorful and it is nutritious and filling. And so you have your uh, couple of slices that you make your sandwich with or you make some toast with and put something on it, uh, peanut butter, whatever it happens to be. You're going to be satisfied. You'll be satiated.
0: That's, it, it is funny that the, the gluten intolerance I hear from a lot of people, and they go, oh, but I can have sourdough if I buy it from my local bakery. And I go, do you yeah. see, do you see yeah. what's starting to maybe go yeah. on here? Do you think maybe it's not the gluten, maybe it's the no, way yeah. it's being processed or how it's being made?
1: We have a, a significant number of people uh, who now buy our flour and buy the bread on occasions that have not been eaten bread uh, for years and years. One of our having flour and pasta or whatever it happens to be.
0: One of the running jokes behind pandemic is like week three. I've taken up baking at home. Like it yeah, seems, yeah. it seems like every other person I follow personally on Instagram is like, I'm a baker now. This yeah, is apparently yeah, what I do. What,
1: it's, it's a it's a real thing for sure. Oh, yeah. I've got I've our got flour sales deep. have gone up. Yeah, for sure.
0: Yeah, how does it look on on that side? What what has that been like during the pandemic? How has the business shifted? Uh,
1: well, all of our restaurant business are ninety. Percent of it is all gone obviously um and um our retail business um is um is holding up pretty well again thanks in, in large part to the co ops I would have to say, and some other locals that I mentioned earlier that have been strong supporters of ours um but uh, you know the restaurant business was a big part of red table and and Allomar cheese uh, in particular. Uh, also the the bread side of things and you know there's it's devastating out there to look at the hospitality industry and what has happened Um, yeah it's uh, you see people's lives work uh, and you know it's just slipped away Um, uh, downtown Minneapolis uh, I think you know there's a lot of discussion going on right now about what needs to take place to get that to come back and you know it's a it's a complex issue, so it yeah. is um, because there's a lot of things there that also were underlying uh, cracks in the system prior to COVID 19 that just get um, exacerbated under these conditions, and so there's a lot of work to be done, but again, you know, human beings. They're very uh, resilient and uh, and adaptable, and there will be, I think, you know, it'll be tough for a few years, but obviously, you know, we'll figure it out as well. It'll be really interesting to
0: see what comes out of this in terms of a creativity standpoint. We've already seen some incredibly, like, fast-acting, creative approaches to all of this, but I'm really interested to see is, like... What is something that's starting right now or a shift that ends up being something that sticks even when all of this is yeah. quote unquote normal again or whatever it may be?
1: Yeah, well, hopefully, that there are things about, uh, you know, in particular with um, uh, uh, equality, mm-hmm. that there's continued changes on that front. I think that's uh, important to. Um, uh, that's actually probably core, fundamental to whatever recovery is in place. And then um, that there is also uh, less division in the country, uh, and that it is one for all, all for one. Mentality to some degree. I don't want it to sound, <laughs> uh, you know, like uh, I, I'm not aware of uh, some of the deep-seated challenges that take place uh, that are, are that are in place. And so, uh, but I would also be very uh, optimistic. I think it's a very in general, a very optimistic country. I, I think it is. Uh, it is one where personal endeavor and so forth does get um, uh, does get an opportunity, you know. Um, and so, po- hopefully, that is the case. And in eighteen months' time, that we're, uh, people are doing better, we're looking more optimistic and a bit more united.
0: And, and I personally, I I like to think that discomfort and sometimes struggle can lead to great things and yeah. that it's its almost the opposite would be, well, comfort just leads to, I don't know how to phrase the opposite of it, but in my own personal life, I should say that every time I've thought that my life was at its absolute worst and I've gone through some times I'm not super proud of, but... Mm-hmm. From those times, I now can look back at that and the lessons you learn from those I think are going to be way more valuable than the times where you say everything's peachy. I'm just going to continue doing it exactly like this because I'm good now. Mm -hmm. And obviously, it's not how we all wanted it to happen, but that's the only thing I can hope that happens out of this, especially within the restaurant industry is having worked in and out of it for quite some time now. The people you run into, there's a group of people that you're going to throw a challenge at and they're going to figure it out. It's hopefully this group of people.
1: Yeah, I would hope so, although I, I do joke, my standard joke, and it's only half joking, half tongue-in-cheek, is I should have gone fishing about eight years ago <laughs> instead, of doing the, instead of doing this, and now I'd be going around pretending I was a genius <laughs> instead of that an idiot I am. But, uh, yeah, because we're, uh, we're uh, lashed to the mast in the middle of the ocean, the storms are raging, we have a little boat and we're looking for dry land. <laughs> so <laughs> that's how I feel about it so <laughs> so I, I, most I, days.
0: I assume 8 years ago you're referring to the uh the merger with Jim Beam over at Two Gingers.
1: Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. I could have I could have I could have retired. Now I'm not going to live long enough to retire. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so how how did that come to be? What what was the time frame from launching Two Gingers to joining up with Jim Beam to then deciding Food Building is going to come
1: together? Uh they I guess they um uh, Well the logic two gingers what happened was had been bought um uh Bought the distillery in Ireland. Kilbaggan? I, I yeah, Kilbaggan Distillery Company. And uh, I did, so I did not own the distillery. So they were making two gingers for me. Our blend, our brand, that was created. It was for the pubs originally only. I decided to take it out of the pubs. So with the three tier system, I sold the pubs to the people that worked with me and took it on the road. And so it really was um, only 18 months afterwards that uh, the been bought two gingers and so I'm still on contract with them and do some work with them on the brand side of it and um, uh, you know and that's been you know good relationship um. Smart people. The Irish business Kilbeggan Distilling Company is a pretty small part of their overall portfolio, uh, but a, a, a growing one, but very small. And so, you know, yeah, I decided, you know, well, I better keep myself uh, keep myself active in this uh, food business. Um, you know, uh, staying back close to the roots of farmers and makers seems like a brilliant idea. And uh, boy what an eight years it's been, or well, seven years, I suppose, it's been. It's uh, it's tough going. So
0: j- just 18 months between launching yeah. Two Gingers and when this acquisition happened. Well,
1: I tell people that, that it was probably 25 years. <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> because, you know, you're learning stuff all along the, uh, the road from the beginning of the pubs, relationships that you're building, uh, insights that you're gaining. Um, and so... You know, that level of, 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 of the curiosity that you have is taking all of that on board. And then you're taking action based on the curiosity and things that you learn. And so it might have seemed like yeah, a relatively short amount of time. Uh, if it was 25 years ago, that would not have happened in 18 mm-hmm. months. And so, again, I had a lot of knowledge and a lot of experience that had been built up over all of those years.
0: What were the key insights with Two Gingers that you think allowed it to have the success it had? Uh,
1: well, I can tell you for what, well, you start with a really good product. And mm-hmm. so uh, the Kilbegan Distilling Company and their master distiller at the time, Noel Sweeney, a uh, brilliant guy He's one of like 120 people that's in the worldwide Whiskey Hall of Fame and a brilliant Blender and distiller. And so um, I, uh, you know, so you start with a really great product, but mine was I wanted it to be the public house type whiskey. Mm -hmm. I wanted it to be accessible to a broad, Segment of the population from a price standpoint, uh, from a quality standpoint, and from an attitude standpoint as well, and uh, also then big ginger. Uh, so we trademarked big ginger because I wanted people drinking it in the summer uh, and not just in the winter time. I mean, I've gone back now when whiskey wasn't nearly as popular as it was as it is today. Mm-hmm. I mean, the the, the sh- change in the whiskey market in the last seven eight years. I mean, it's extraordinary. I've been hoping that the uh, salami business and the stone milling flour and the cheese business would uh, would move as quick, <laughs> but know uh, it's it's, uh, it's a little bit different. I told people, uh, you know, God, it should be the other way around. People should be more excited about the food and the stuff than the booze side of stuff. And <laughs> I said, you can't live without without food. And uh, somebody said, Well, I'm not sure you can live without the booze, but you know, obviously <laughs> one can. <laughs> so it does. Some people should. <laughs> But uh, no, it's uh, yeah, it's been an interesting journey. How
0: did you find the makers that you work with at the food building? Did you have these relationships already identified, or did you go? Did you have a a set idea of the types of business that you wanted to have?
1: Well, there is something about. Timelessness and and, and and timeless businesses. So Mike Phillips was my partner in Red Table Meats. Mike had uh, uh, and had a relationship with an old uh, uh, colleague of mine, Stephen Brown, who was the chef with me mm-hmm. when I opened the local first, and now he has Tilly and Saint Genevieve. And so he introduced me to Mike, and Mike knew um, Steve uh, for Bakersfield, and I had known Keith Adams uh, with Alamar. Uh, through another relationship. So they're really all relationships that have been built over the years and connections. And, uh, you know, you think about things that have been around for a long time. Stone milling flour. Mm-hmm. I mean, shit, they've been doing that for thousands of years, right? <laughs> uh, dry curing meats in the caves in the, in Europe and in the Middle East. They've been dry curing meats, again, for centuries. Uh, uh, churning milk. Uh, to make butter and cheese Centuries it's been done for, and so these are timeless uh, products uh, they have great nutritional value, and so what we were bringing really was the hand crafting and they are handcrafted because you physically can see into the operations with big windows, so you can see the uh, the hand uh, operation uh, in place, but we also have all the modern equipment as well uh, because they are um, highly regulated in um, industries like USDA plant for the Red Table, Department of Ag for the... uh, for the other products. And so uh, we are doing things that have been done for thousands of years. We're doing them from a health safety standpoint in the way that's required nowadays, uh, but we're still doing them with the same intention and with the same level of uh, integrity that it had been done for so many years to preserve, again, the nutritional value and the flavor.
0: And, and what's the big advantage of stone milling versus any other type of...
1: Well, the the, the stone milling, it, it doesn't... Crush the the grain in the same way that uh, that roller mills do in the highly uh, industrialized mills, and so the brand, the germ, and the endosperm, uh, uh, you're taking uh, the majority of that and keeping it intact. Mm. Uh, whereas uh, you know your commercial uh, mills, it's heavily just the endosperm, uh, which is basically white flour, mm. which is um, basically starch sugar.
0: What was it like getting? Uh the stone mill to get passed by the state or the health department? Because I have to imagine there's not many people with a stone mill around.
1: No, I think there would be an awful lot more of them, though, uh, down the road. Um, because, again, they do make a massive difference in terms of the flavor and the nutrient value. Uh, but we do have to have a three-hour rated fire room, uh, even though it's a relatively st- they're small mills. We have a 48-inch and a 40-inch mills. Um, but, yeah, they have to be... Uh, have to be a three-hour fire rated. <laughs> and, and so it took a little bit of work, but eventually, because it was really the first stone mill in Minneapolis in the mill city in over 100 years.
0: That that Because we're, we're just, even with the tasting and tour room, we just got a mobile coffee unit, but the fact that it's mobile, you would... It, it's almost like we came up with this entirely new concept i'm like everything's the same except the water's just here instead of coming out of a pipe and just getting a license is still i don't is still ongoing this week <laughs> and is. i'm kind of crossing my fingers it comes in time for saturday but and so i look at someone like what you're doing at food building that you're dry aging meats which again is thousands of years old but to americans is like well, no, that has to be refrigerated, doesn't it? And and stone milling and fermenting is. Did you have to educate the health department or work with them on what you're doing? Or is it something they're somewhat familiar with?
1: Um, well, with regards to Red David Mates, we certainly had to work with the USDA. Uh, the local inspectors had not had any experience hmm. of it. Uh, but this is where the great uh, institution, that is the University of Minnesota, uh, their uh, agriculture department, which is... Uh, as good as anything that you f- probably find anywhere in the world, um, were uh, and continue to be an extraordinary resource for us. Uh, in fact, every time I see that the university has a uh, a bit of bad publicity, it's usually around sports. Let's <laughs> face it, or whatever. I think, boy, they should really be focusing on what they're doing at the ag department mm. because it is uh, how it benefits uh, the state. Is um, yeah, it's a. Invaluable resource that we have here, and so yeah, we're eternally grateful to them. So they were a big, a, a huge help in all of the uh, businesses,
0: and especially in Minnesota, where this city of Minneapolis is rooted in food, especially oh, flour, yeah. when, with the milling yeah. that was able to happen because of the Mississippi. Um, right. And we can we can end on this here, but and this is, might be a a long question, or you can answer it very concisely. Is with the average consumer, what is the education piece? If you could teach them any educational piece about what you're doing at food building that you think most people are missing, what is that link that's missing between your average consumer of food and what you're doing at food building that might not be the link that people are connecting at this point?
1: Well, I think the uh, probably the single biggest thing that people can do is to, um, you know, Everybody they all, Everybody makes their own choices, mm-hmm. you know, and they have their own value system and they inform themselves and they make those choices based on their personal circumstances. So I never question or query, but for people who are interested in where their food comes from, how are the people in uh, on the chain, uh, in our case, it's a short chain, it's a farmer and a maker, <laughs> uh, basically, uh, how they are treated and how it all works together. For people who are really interest in that, that's who I would say. That's who we're talking to. They can absorb themselves into uh, finding out through our website, foodbuilding.com. They can come visit us at Food Building and Kieran's Kitchen or the other businesses. Uh, If they shop at um, any of the ones that support us out there in the marketplace, uh, then they will find and see, and hopefully it resonates with them. I mean, we have some great... uh, Footage online, Uh, public uh, uh, television did a wonderful piece called "Tastemakers" on um, uh, on what we're doing specifically on the uh, uh, on the. Uh, Bakersfield side of things Um, but we've also had TPT here in the Twin Cities do a piece on us as well and so we have a lot of that video available where we were interviewed the farmers were interviewed the makers were interviewed and it really speaks to uh, the uh, the intentionality of what we are doing and the, what the benefits are to what we believe be not just the uh, our customers our supporters uh, but also the community at large because the, the money gets to stay here and spread as you uh, uh, spoke about earlier on
0: and that is what i felt what when i went there a couple of weeks ago when we were just dining on the lawn is you go this it it has more of a community feel when you're eating a meal that's cultivated by all the people that are there it's cultivated in that building and it, it's it's almost like you have this like small town center in the middle of Minneapolis where it's you go this is probably should be the norm not the not the bread that the, that's there for a month or the shredded cheese that has to have a layer of wax put on it into a bag for it to be able to not okay. melt when it gets to you yeah. uh, for meats with a fake white mold on the outside to literally fool you into thinking this is authentically dry aged. Uh, And that was my big takeaways. Not only was the meal fantastic. And I think even if you don't care about any of that stuff, the taste of it it warrants the 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 price that it should yeah, be. Taste, at, it
1: has to taste. That's for sure. it's exactly yeah, no right. No question about that. We're all, we're not snobs either yeah. about stuff because you know how would you be a snob about stuff that literally has been around for thousands of years? <laughs> I mean, this is just real, regular, uh, nutritious, uh, tasty food. Mm-hmm. That's just. Basically unadulterated. Exactly. And so yeah, there's no sobriety. This is we would love if not just from us, but that in general that that's what was available to people across the spectrum, socio economic spectrum out there. Uh, I think that would be a value to our society in general, not just about our businesses, uh, but just in general that that's what was available uh, to people. I think you'd have certainly have a healthier society for sure.
0: I could not agree more. I really appreciate you coming in. Appreciate the time.
1: It's a pleasure. And uh, obviously, we'll continue. And I'm looking forward to my tour uh, <laughs> of folly. Absolutely. it is, And uh, we'll get that in the books here very quickly and uh, and see how we can collaborate uh, going down the road. I love it. And continued success with your business.
0: Same to you. I, I'll be there this Thursday for a uh, quick delivery sandwich. <laughs>
1: Excellent. All right. Have a good one.